0: So is it fair then to 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 call people who speak Afrikaans Afrikaners? I find myself getting into trouble now and then um, with friends who who I know are Afrikaans speakers. When I call them Afrikaners, they say, "Don't call me an Afrikaner." Well, I mean, is there a difference between an Afrikaans speaker and an Afrikaner? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> I think the the term Afrikaner still has too much of a loaded political um, meaning. Hello again, I'm Peter Bruce and welcome back to Podcasts from the Edge, my weekly attempt to ease or at least reduce my constant anxiety about not knowing anything. I find ignorance tolerable if it's out in the open and Podcasts from the Edge is my attempt to educate myself. And I find the older I get, the less interested I am in the future of South Africa and the more interested I am in the as it was when I was a boy. So I've been reading a bit and thoroughly enjoying this history has been produced at a rapid pace by my friend and fellow former newspaper editor Richard Stein. and it was while reading his biography of General Louis Boitier, I realized reading the book that I have no idea, for instance, what language the Boer fighters were using as they fought and frightened the life out of the British Empire. So I began to cast around for somebody to talk to about Afrikaans and Afrikaners, if it turns out that there are such people. Around, my father's most mentioned name was that of Ilov, a Renaissance man of such measure that I'm embarrassed to even try and sum up his life. He's been a priest and student leader, a university vice-chancellor, author, a diplomat who kept all sides talking to each other during the peace process that gave us our democracy. He was one of the delegation of african speaking leaders who met the ANC leadership in Senegal in 1987. He's run the FW de Klerk Foundation and he's now chairman of Astral Foods the major poultry producer, and chairman of the Duckbrook Trust, a nearly 68-year-old fund that has grown out of the newspaper industry which now promotes Afrikaans' culture and language. So, Tians, thank you so much for joining me and making time to talk. I want to ask you about the history of the language, but given that we are in South South Africa and interested in current affairs, they might come up as well. But first things first. The first policy uh, position adopted by the new DA leadership has been to announce a campaign for the return of Afrikaans as a medium of instruction or education at Stellenbosch University. Do you support that and do you know why it was taken away?
1: Peter, thank you very much for the privilege. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that I know the guy you described, but um, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll take okay. some of it. Look, it, it's, it's a long story, um, but it, it boils down to the following that in section 29.2 of our constitution, the right tongue language tuition is acknowledged. And on that basis, Afrikaans public schools and universities who had Afrikaans as tuition language based their reason for existence on. There was a clash between uh, equality and access on the one hand of especially black students and learners and the language rights on the other hand. And unfortunately, our constitutional court in every single case so far uh, has taken a decision to give preference to equality and access at the cost of Afrikaans as tuition. So at the moment, there is literally only one out of 36 campuses in our country of university campuses where you can still get a degree in Afrikaans, not in the language, not in the, in the subject Afrikaans, but through the tuition of Afrikaans. And that is Pontchestrom campus of the Northeast University. At Stellenbosch University, it's been watered down over a long period of time uh, to the advantage of English, and, and sometimes under the guise of, of so-called multilingualism. The fact is that at the moment, uh, Afrikaans is dwindling at, at Stellenbosch University, um, and that is why I think the DA saw this as, as an opportunity to, to stake sort of a claim, a language claim. Obviously, there are some political considerations in the Western Cape, you know, you m- m- the, the majority of Afrikaans speakers in South Africa are not white today. About 60%, 57% to be exact are so-called colored or, or, or colour brown people. Uh, and only the minority are, are white. And I think that is part of the decision of the DA to, to work for that. My own view is that it's it's not possible to unscramble that egg. Um, at Podgerstrom, you may have a chance, but even their demographic and other political considerations. And the ideology... Uh, of of the ANC government has, has made it almost impossible to to let Afrikaans survive as a language of higher education. With the schools, it's slightly better at the moment still. Um, there are, of the 24,000-odd schools we have in South Africa, 1,250 have Afrikaans as a single medium of instruction. About another 1,200 have... Afrikaans and English as a dual medium of instruction, but most of those schools are under pressure to become English only, and so Afrikaans is under,
0: under huge pressure in our education system. i uh, say so Lord Milner would have been very pleased. Uh, the, when you did meet the ANC in Senegal um, in 1987, did the issue of language come up at all?
1: Only in passing, you know, we were talking about the the sort of bigger picture things of politics to a lesser extent, economics. It was more about do we have a constitution? Will there be a Bill of Rights and things like that? I think it was taken for granted that uh, there there would be a Bill of Rights and that there would be certain rights, language and cultural rights. And indeed, those rights have have been, you know, have been set uh, into the the constitution of, of 1996. Uh, the problem is that the, the race transformation ideology of, of the ruling party have made it impossible for, for minorities to, to keep uh, those, some of those rights. Uh, I think one of the other things uh, is that in the Constitution it says in, in, in the first chapter that uh, the government, has the state has a specific duty to develop the other languages to the same parity, of, they should have parity of esteem. And that's one of the things that hasn't been done in the near South Africa. So there's a sort of de facto move, almost a default move, towards English as the only language everywhere. And that's, I think, not only to the detriment of Afrikaans, but also to Isikosa and Tswana and Pedi and all the others.
0: We'll come back to that in a minute, because obviously Afrikaans has developed to the extent that it is an academic language as well. Um, But I wanted to ask you, Tiens, about how Afrikaans first started being spoken in South Africa. I mean, you know, the Dutch arrived, presumably speaking Dutch, um, the, the, what we like to call the French Huguenots, who were Protestant French from a Dutch-speaking part of the country, near Flanders, I think, arrived speaking more or less Dutch. What I guess the question is, to what problem was the creation of the Afrikaans language a solution? The interesting thing, Peter, is that the aim of
1: language is to communicate uh, and to understand one another, and that is exactly why Afrikaans was created. But this creation process was a long, long process. And for that, I need to take you back slightly. Obviously, um, even before that bad guy, according to Jacob Zuma, Jan van Riebe, came to the Cape to set up a a small uh, station there, uh, for, for giving water and, and and provisions to passing ships. There had already been a number of Portuguese seafarers who landed on the west coast near Mosul Bay and who had contact with the local koi. Uh, the koi was was the other part of the Khoi sun, so the sun were more the, the, the hunters, gather, gatherers, while the koi were farmers who had cattle and, and sheep. And to understand each other, the Portuguese had to start learning some words from the Khoi. But it, it has been proven that the the Khoi could uh, learn Portuguese easier than the, the Portuguese Portuguese could learn Khoi. Uh, so that was the first contact. And and then obviously, when the Dutch came in 1652, that contact went went broader and and deeper. So over the 150 years that the the Dutch controlled uh, the Cape. Uh, Dutch became the language spoken there, but it, it underwent significant changes. Uh, it became different from the Dutch spoken in, in the Netherlands. Uh, and the influences on, on that language, and how Bracans is a language that, that has a huge diversity in it, is that you had influences uh, from the Koi. Um, their, their interaction with the, with the Dutch settlers um, made them to speak and make some words that they could understand each other. Then, early, early or late in the 17th century, the slave trade also became strong in the, in the Cape. Slaves were imported from the East, from Malaysia and other places, and, and the, 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 the slaves also had an input into that. Uh, and, and one of the first, interesting enough, the first written Afrikaans, or call it Afrikaans Dutch, was as early as 1750 when, when in Muslim Afrikaans, uh, there was an in, in Arabic, uh, in, in Arabic script, uh, some Afrikaans was, was written. So um, what happened here is that you had a diversity of people. You mentioned the French Huguenots, there was Germans, there were the British settlers, but mostly the Germans, the French, and the Dutch, uh, we had to interact with uh, the local population, the Khoi, and obviously with the slaves. And so what happened is that the Dutch became a more popular speak um, and, and, as it was called, slightly common, more common form of Dutch. And it was called Cape Dutch, basically. Um, and over, over the 150 years, it became spoke, spoken by more and more people. Um, and as, as, they, as they moved inland, you know, to farm or to hunt, they took that with them. And so the, the Dutch that was spoken in the court or in the, in the castle by the officials remained closer to the Netherlands Dutch. But the Dutch spoken in the rural areas where slaves interacted, where the koi interacted with the, with the farmers, became much more of, of, of an Afrikaans. Um, obviously the academics uh, have have done a lot of research about this, but it seems that as early as 1707, one of the Dutch settlers, uh, Hendrik Bibo, had this famous uh, pronunciation in, in a court of law when, when he was taken to court because he didn't pay taxes. He said, "Ik ben an Afrikaner. I am an African uh, Afrikaner, actually." And, but, but so over time, over the 150 years, the Dutch became not yet Afrikaans, as we know it today, obviously, but a, but a, but a, a bastard form of Dutch, which was was quite different from what was spoken. And, and that, that was a hybrid language. And that's why Afrikaners today have a new sense, uh, almost a new awakening, that Afrikaans is not just a European language, it's a mixture of European words, Khoi words, and Malay or slave words from, from the East. So in that sense, it's really a creation of Africa. Now, what happened after, um, as our country and, and Africa, as uh, it's, all, it's, it's often happened, is that the British uh, annexed the Cape um, first time in 1795. Then afterwards, three years the, the Dutch got it back. But in 1806, the British finally got there, and they they um, they were governors then of, of the Cape. And for the next 110 years, until 1910, the British influence was very strong. And as the Brits do everywhere they go in the world. They anglicize everything that walks uh, or doesn't walk. And, uh, and so they were immediately in Cape Town and, and surroundings. There was a strong anglicization project by Lord Charles Somerset. And you, know, you, you see Craddock and Caledon, the, the, the towns that we have were all named after English or British governors. And so the, the Dutch then, or the Afrikaans call it the Afrikaans Dutch speaking people, were far further away from Cape Town. But as they moved closer inland, that language went with them. And at that time, you had four specific types of Afrikaans. There was the Muslim Afrikaans, which was spoken in Cape Town mostly, obviously, by Muslims. There was the Khoi Afrikaans, which was spoken by Khoi working on farms or uh, trading with, with farmers. There was the Farmer Afrikaans, those guys who were free burgers or freiburgers. burgers, and then you had on the on the closer in the Karoo today's Karoo, you have the, the border Afrikaans, uh, people who had contact with more with Khoi, and, and people are saying that that border Afrikaans, really together with some other Orange River Afrikaans, Griqua Afrikaans, became the, the sort of foundation for for standard Afrikaans, as as we
0: know today. When, when, when was it first codified? That when was it written down? Was there must have been the production of a dictionary at some stage or? A... Textual. Yes, uh,
1: in the in the middle eighties, eighteen fifty sixty, you you already had some script letters in newspapers here and there, uh, a small little little uh, magazine, uh, but it was only in the early twentieth century that the that there was the codification and there was there was a whole move to to codify and decide you know what what is African's. What I when you want, when you asked me to come onto the program. I had to do a bit of research just to refresh my memory. And what I realized is that Afrikaans actually had two uh, antagonists. The one was English, obviously, but the other one was, 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 was Dutch, because there were some people, Dutch-speaking people, but also uh, people who had been long uh, living in South Africa, who thought that we should keep Dutch because it, 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 was, a, it was a more international language than this new bastard language. So Afrikaans had to overcome two foes, to, to become codified. and that was brought about by three two or three people differ about whether there was two or three Talbavians language movements, the one as early as 1875. Now the irony here, and this is a tra- tragic uh, history of Afrikaans, is that in 1875 a guy called Arnoldus Pontifus um, had a strong campaign to have the Bible, translated from Dutch into Afrikaans, so that colored people, as he, would, as he called them, could understand understand the Bible better. But they couldn't understand this high Dutch that the Bible was written in. Unfortunately, after him, the, the move went more to nationalism and white Afrikaners. So when the Bible was, was eventually translated, starting to be translated in the late 19th century, and it was finished, completed in 1933, Afrikaans was declared almost a white language, even though it had the input and the, and, and the words from a myriad of, of, of other sources. And, and because Afrikaans and nationalism then became synonymous. And although the colored people still spoke Afrikaans, uh, the, the white
0: people almost annexed it. Yes. So is it fair then to, 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 to call people who speak Afrikaans Afrikaners? I find myself getting into trouble now and then um, with friends who, who I know are Afrikaans speakers when I call them Afrikaners, they say don't call me an Afrikaner. Well, I mean is there a difference between an Afrikaans speaker and an Afrikaans? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> I think the, the term
1: Afrikaner still has too much of a loaded political um, meaning. Colored people, so called colored people brown people as we say in Afrikaans um, have a very strong sense that they are, they are Afrikaans speakers but they are not in the political sense of the word, or the national, nationalist sense of the word, Afrikaners. I am both, I am an Afrikaner, but I also feel a very strong affinity to everyone, whatever color, also speak Afrikaans. So, uh, you know, it, for me, it's, it's sort of concentric circles, uh, culturally and history wise, I'm an Afrikaner, and I don't want to be anything else, but I'm also wider, in a wider sense of the word, an Afrikaans speaker. Uh, in Afrikaans, we would say Afrikaans spreken. and I think many, many, especially of, of coloured people, but some, some white Afrikaans speakers would say I'm not an Afrikaner because that's too much of a political loaded term, linked to apartheid. Um, but I think it's 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 becoming less so, and I think more and more people say, look, I, I you know I'm, I'm an Afrikaner and I'm okay with that. I remember when I was a student in the 1970s. Uh, I didn't want to be called an Afrikaner. I, I said I'm a South African. And, and it was only after, you know, we had our constitution and where Afrikaans there was a place uh, in the constitution that I started again calling myself an Afrikaner.
0: There was there was, uh, there was many attempts, and they started a long time ago, to define what an Afrikaner was. And there was a magazine or a newspaper in the uh, 1850s, I think it was, um, Uh, called Die Zeit-Afrikaan. It was a Dutch publication, but it defined Afrikaners as those, whether English or Dutch, who inhabit the land and were bound by duty and interest to further the well-being of their country. Obviously, um, that didn't stick. How how are Afrikaners able now um, to assert themselves as a culture? Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of Afrikaans-speaking people I know are having tremendous amount of fun in the new South Africa. They are Mm -hmm. relieved of the burden of being the bad guys. Um, And I just wonder whether the culture is changing with it as well, you know. I'm I'm like most English people, I just speak English and I get spoken back to me and I sometimes am ashamed of myself for not paying the right sort of respect to other South Africans or whatever language they might speak mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, without asking if it's okay, you know, to speak yes. to them in my language. <laughs> um, it's a difficult thing.
1: Look, you know, I think
0: these days
1: many Afrikaners or African speakers are relieved, as you say, that the burden of apartheid has been left behind. Obviously, we've, we're... Uh, uh, reminded every now and then uh, of that by the likes of Julius Malema and others, um, which I think they use race and, and, and that more to to great problems than, than try to build a nation. Um, I think they are at the moment uh, if i if I can can analyze the Afrikaans speakers a bit, uh, you have obviously the one divide, not a divide, but the one distinction is white, Afrikan speakers and 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 then brown African speakers and there are about seven hundred thousand black African speakers. The, the census showed a while ago. So they are literally Africans who speak Afrikaans as their own language. Um, amongst the white Afrikaans speakers, you probably have in the northern parts of the of the country. Uh, most of them would would call themselves Afrikaners. Um, they would um, often belong to AfriForum. Or solidarity, not not all of them, but quite a number of them. Um, you have in the in the southern parts, you have uh, the Afrikaners who would not identify with with solidarity or AfriForum. Although sometimes I I think they 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 did what the uh, the English voters did during the National Party. They they um, blamed the National Party but pray to God that they stayed, stayed in, in in government. Um, and so, so you've got different Afrikaners. And, and Herman Chilomir, a renowned, uh, renowned uh, um, historian, uh, has this tongue in cheek uh, description. He said, in the, in the, um, in the, during the days of the Boer War, end of 19th century, you have the Republicans in the North who said, we are not subjects of anyone. We are burghers. We are citizens of a republic. Whereas the Cape Afrikaners said, we are uh, we are subjects, loyal subjects of Her Maj- Majesty the Queen, and to some extent, you still, you still, um, he says, you still have that distinction that many of the of the Southern Afrikaners or Afrikan speakers are loyal subjects of of the uh, of the governing party, whereas the guys in the north are slightly more rebellious and want to do their own thing. Uh, it's a generalization, but you you, you get the point but does it, um,
0: does it fit still? because in in a way it it you know that might mirror the time of the boer war but if you see today um you know a kind of increasing rebelliousness um among african speaking people um it doesn't show itself nobody's riding around the you know the country on horseback shooting people but no, no. the you know, afri forum is is very active it's just built itself a, a university um, uh, is is you know and and to Afrikan Afrikaners have never really been as united as people would like to portray them sometimes as having been, but but um, I just wonder whether there's a new divide in, in amongst Afrikan speakers now. Yes, look, I would say that ninety eight ninety nine percent of all Afrikaners,
1: white Afrikan speaking Afrikaners are happy with the constitution, uh, don't want to go anywhere else. Some of them do immigrate, though, but they don't want a new homeland. They don't want to go and live in Irania. They're quite happy if others want to go there and they're happy, but we're not going there. Uh, so I think, you know, constitutionally speaking, they, they, they accept the constitution. They're happy that apartheid is gone. What, what concerns them are two sets of factors. The, the one set of factors uh, is a concern for everyone in the country, and that would be uh, crime, you know, safety, uh, education standards, living standards, the economy, et cetera, et cetera. That's not new. That's not uh, typical of, of Afrikaners. But then you you come, to, you come to things like language and cultural areas and stuff, so and especially the way the Afrikaans language has been taken out of universities and increasingly under pressure in schools. And that that puts them uh, you know, on, their, on their feet, their, their back feet. And, and they say, well, you know, we've 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 had this wonderful transition with the new constitution, and we're very happy with that, and we're doing our bit, we're creating jobs, we you know active in the economy, but more and more, what we've strived for that we got written into the constitution by consensus, also by the ANC, is dwindled down, is is um, is watered down in terms of whether we can have even non-racial schools. Uh, using Afrikaans as, as, as language, and as I said, unfortunately, the the courts, especially the Constitutional Court, have not has not
0: clouded itself in glory in, the, in that regard. Do you think? Uh, we, have, do you think they have a point? I mean, do you think in, the people that are irritated by this um, have a right to be irritated or annoyed or upset? I, I do. I do. I do think so. Yes, but because what what is happening for instance,
1: typically in Gauteng, with the very notorious Mr. Panyasa Lusufi, he hasn't built 10% of the schools that he had a budget for and should have built in the last five years. So what happens in, in, in the beginning of the year is that he has too many children, learners, to place. And so he says, look, I, I, we, we must place them everywhere. And the moment you have 20 or 30 or 40 learners who can't speak Afrikaans in Afrikaans school, you must have double, double medium language. And we've seen historically the last 10 years that within five years, a double medium school, unless you are a Gray or a Paul Ruiz, where they have a specific uh, uh, structured um, way to do things, those schools become uh, English only. Um, and, and so, yes, I do think in, in that regard, they, they have a point. It's not that they, they don't want any other than this or don't want any uh, non africans learners in their schools. That's not the point. The point is that the government has a responsibility. We all pay taxes for them to build enough schools for all the, for all the population. And I feel strongly personally that the government should listen to the international um, research in this regard and we should have mother tongue tuition in schools up to grade uh, six or even eight. Uh, because that's that's what the international research shows, and I think are we even uh, capable of that? Well, it, it's supposed to go to grade three now, but if we're not capable, uh, Peter, when in in the in the urban areas, you now have second and perhaps even third generation Black South Africans who speak English. They fine. they're English. Uh, the problem is that we still have more than forty percent, forty-five percent. My last count of our learners, are in rural areas and they don't speak proper English. They don't speak English well. And, and I, have a, I have a theory uh, that's perhaps slightly more than a theory that even our bad performance in maths in our schools is a language problem, not a maths problem. Uh, if you, it's been shown if you don't understand the language properly, you can't speak it, if you're forced to speak it too early, then you can't understand maths, you can't do maths. So, uh, yes, I do think Afrikaners have a point. Uh, and it's interesting enough in, in, in this regard, white Afrikaners and brown Afrikan speakers have common cause. And they, they're moving closer to each other because in, in the Cape, where most of the brown Afrikan speakers are, more and more schools are moving also to English and leaving them iron dry. And especially again, it's the rural areas where browns, uh, you know, in the, in the Western Cape, uh, in the, at the West Coast and so on where they are forced here yeah, there, where the English, the, the Afrikaans schools are becoming double medium and they're English only, where they don't have any place to go. And that puts, the, that puts them at a disadvantage. To give you one, one little uh, statistic, um, of, of Afrikan speaking brown learners, only 2.5% gain access to university. Uh, 2.5%. Now that is, I mean, uh, Indians are about 70% uh, whites are, I think, still around 50%. Africans are now coming up between 30 and 40%, and coloured Afrikaans uh, pupils are only 2.5%. And it's often a quality issue, but it's also a language
0: issue. And the solution, the solution is obviously to 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 govern better. Um, but why does it have no political expression? This this, um, this this sort of absence of opportunity. I mean, why does it? You know, I understand that the Freedom Front Plus is a largely Afrikaans party, but it doesn't campaign um, as an Afrikaans party. It's strangely muted in that respect, I find. Why is is this not translated into a political movement? I I must say I don't know.
1: I'm I'm thinking very hard while you're asking the question. I I do think that uh, civil civil rights organizations such as AfriForum has made strides in this regard. Now, perhaps I should just tell the listeners that the overarching, we'll call it the federal structure, is the solidarity movement. They're the overarching, and then they've got, under solidarity movement, you've got the solidarity trade union, typical trade union, you've got Afroforum, you've got Marula Media, you've got Academia, which is the university, you've got Soltech, which is a technical college. That's the one you spoke about earlier. Um, so I think Afri Forum, as a civil rights arm of the Solidarity Movement, have done a lot about this in, in the past, but they're also doing other things. They're also working with municipalities to restore water uh, and sewage um, facilities to all yeah. communities, those white communities. But they are activists uh, and, and so, so often people don't like their style, they don't like what they do. But I think that would be the closest to a political movement. I think the, the problem basically is, is numbers that the Afrikaners uh, in, in numbers are now, I would say, at about four million and dwindling because of, of immigration mostly. Um, colored Afrikaans speakers are about, I would say six or seven million, so so more than those. But not all of them are mobilizable, if I can use the word, for a cause such as Afrikaans. More more we find that they are at a local level, they can get very active, uh, activist about if, if, if is there
0: is there a noticeable immigration of african speakers
1: i don't think more than english or white english speakers uh, but but yes because the, the, both of those groups have, have small small numbers i i, 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 I would guess that english speaking white south africans would now be about two and a half million uh, if that much so yeah uh, those are the people who have the means to immigrate colored african speakers will in very rare cases immigrate. And obviously uh April of this year was the first time on an absolute basis where more Africans, more black South Africans immigrated than white South Africans.
0: Is it is it possible to is it possible to build a private university in South Africa? I mean is it possible for for Mr Afri Forum or, or any group, the Dutchberg Trust, um which you're chairman of to build a university and to say, look, we're building this to teach, uh, uh, to teach people in Afrikaans. It's an academic language. Um, uh, you can become a doctor or a lawyer or a brain surgeon in Afrikaans. Um, would the government stop you?
1: No. Uh, in actual fact, you know, uh, Solidarity has built Soltech, uh, which is a, a technical college, uh, about 12 years ago, if I'm right. Uh, the new building that I think you referred to is, is the building of Soltec, so it's a technical college, and they've not had any problems from government in terms of, of curriculum and things like that. In actual fact, I know that Bladen's and they had a long discussion with them the other day about how can they help uh, place other, uh, other technical colleges' uh, graduates because they don't seem to get, to get jobs. Uh, Solidarity is next, is parallel to that busy uh, running uh, Academia, which is a private Afrikaans institution. Uh, Up to the end of this year, it would only be on on a distance learning basis. But from next year, it will take in uh, residential students. So they're hiring at the moment uh, a campus in Centurion. I think they're looking at, they already have about a thousand distance students and they're looking at about 500 uh, for the first intake. They've got five faculties, if I'm right. And they're looking to build in Pretoria East a new campus for academia, uh, which will be ready by 2025. Because it's a you know it's a huge undertaking; it's more than a billion rand. So yes, my, the answer is yes, it can be done. And the government can't stop you and won't stop you unless they have you know some issues with curriculum. But so yeah. far, both Salfick and academia told me that they've not had had good uh, cooperation from the from the civil servants because also it's for the civil servants, mostly it's not a political issue. Uh, I think what would what might be an issue is if they had if they had uh, uh, they place qualifications on 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 access in terms of race, uh, because race is a prohibited factor in in terms of discrimination, whereas language is not. And I know they're working very hard to make sure that they have bursaries also for colored African speaking students. With, with regard to, to schools, Afrikaans schools, uh, we've got some strong uh, public schools in Afrikaans, but one of the trusts I'm chairing is the Trust for Afrikaans Education. And we started in August last year a private company called the MOSS Initiative. MOSS stands for Mudertal, and Onafanklik Skola. So it's basically independent group. And we, as a, as a parallel strategy to good Afrikaans public schools, are starting to build... And, and run Afrikaans independent schools on a non-racial basis. And I'm very excited, it's very small, um, but it's it, it's going to be something for the future. And and that would that would also just show that the constitution does allow that for Afrikaans speakers. And and we're very we're very happy that we have both brown and 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 white Afrikaans speakers fully behind
0: this initiative. Uh, I remember seeing a, a, a press release from Astral Foods um, in about June or July, you had contracted COVID-19, uh, and they were informing the um, the stock market, I guess, or shareholders. Shareholder, uh, yeah. And that was this was a couple of months after you had begged the government publicly to um, to stop the lockdown. How do you think, in retrospect, we have managed um, this pandemic in South Africa?
1: Look, I, let me first put the context right, before I give you my answer. I, I think what happened, not only in South Africa, but elsewhere in the world, is that although people must must concede that this is a, a flu strain, it, it always had been a different one, had no special one. And I think there was so so little known about this, that governments and politicians just didn't know what to do and and what would be the end? i mean it, it could have been much worse, and I think many projections were were much worse because we didn't know. Um, and I think that's why most governments, with the exception of of Trump in, in America and perhaps uh, the guy in Brazil, um, acted with overly cautious if you, if you wish. Uh, and so I would say that although i would I would have thought and I wrote that we we could we should now move to a, a lesser form of lockdown at that point that although we, we probably had the lockdown for six weeks or eight weeks too long and perhaps too severe, we could have lessened it earlier. I, I understand that, that, you know, government could, could always say, look, we can rebuild the economy, but we can't get people's lives back. back. So I think they erred they, they, they on the side of caution. I, I would give uh, President Marimaposa, you know, overall a 7 out of 10 for, for his management of this. He loses three because it, it was too long. Uh, but I think, you know, that was sort of a, the whole world, uh, with a few notable exceptions, acted that way. So, I'm, you know, I know, but I think now we must really, you know, build the economy and make sure that we don't. And uh, I must say, I, I don't envy the president because I think, for instance, he, had, he made a good point, uh, or made a good decision when they locked down Nelson Mandela Bay, which is a specific area, and there's a problem, and the hospitals are not well run there. Yes. Whereas with the, uh, I'm sure Alan Windy said to him, Mr. President, we can't afford to lose all the, the tourists this, this season. Let me let me handle this. And if I can't handle it, you can step in. And, and, and that's why Alan Windy has announced, I think, a three-point plan, and he's asked for, for people to have here. So, yeah. you know, think hospital was wise there. And I'm happy with that. So I, I, I'm not too critical on him. Others may be, maybe maybe thought it uh, shouldn't have been done
0: at all. I think you couldn't have expected anything else but that. Perhaps it was a little bit long. Yeah. And then lastly, just the a, a, a future of the ANC, and 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 it's worth talking about simply because there's no other obvious possible government governing party even on the horizon. Um, this is a dysfunctional uh, unit in almost every conceivable way. How do we how do we survive the ANC? Um, uh, you know, it's almost impossible to put it under pressure because the numbers just aren't there. Um, yeah. Uh, how does the country get past these people? You know, and their their particular problems and their particular way of approaching. Uh, uh, contradictions and difficulties. Um, the ANC yeah. is a law unto itself. The country is governed by the ANC, not by the government. And if you do business yeah. with the government, you're doing actually you're doing business with the party. It's inside.
1: Yeah. Look, I I'm, I'm not Clem Santa, but I've developed three sort of basic scenarios, um, more short term than than 20 years. And uh, and the one is that uh, Cyril uh, wins, and and. Manages to get more, get more uh, investment, uh, roots out the corruption in a, in a planned way, and that we turn things around and that uh, still will be re-elected, uh, and for the second term he would go until 2027, and then there will be younger people to take over and we would have, we would have a three to four, perhaps
0: a five percent growth rate. That's the, that's the best case scenario. Yeah, that's the wild, that's the wildly optimistic one yeah no true. Uh,
1: the, 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 the worst case scenario is that uh, Ace doesn't go away. Um, he's, he's charged as he has been, but he's not found guilty because of a lack of evidence because he's put pressure on all the witnesses not to, to testify against him. Uh, they, uh, at, the, at the next uh, elective conference, they get rid of Cyril, and Ace becomes president. Uh, and ACE would then probably govern until 2029, after which the ANC will be kicked out because the country would be in chaos or they would have a di- dictatorship. So that's the worst-case scenario. The the middle one, which is probably the more realistic one, is that, is that Cyril has some some uh, success in, in terms of the economy. He used the private partnership growth initiative to work around the... The uselessness of of government departments and municipalities and provincial governments, and it gets some things done, but Ace remains, and there's the schism in the ANC. And that would only then come to a head in 2024, or actually 2022, sorry, when the elective conference happens, and it's 50-50 whether whether then makes it because he's made some progress, or whether the likes of Ace or uh, Supramo Mupela or one of those guys uh, come in. In, in any case, you've asked me the question, what, what, how do we get rid of them? Y- you and I have no influence, unfortunately, that the people in the ANC would have to sort this out. Uh, and there are people uh, you know, that are very concerned, and, and, and I think it would be good for us, the likes of us, to talk to them and to give them encouragement and give them, give them wisdom. Uh, but in the end, uh, either the ANC will, will heal itself, but it won't happen automatically, or it would be so bad that there would be some kind of coalition opposition taking over in either 2024, which is unlikely, but definitely 2029. There has been some talk, uh, though, about reviving the concept of a UDF. So instead of, uh, and, and that, that's premised on the fact that if if the if the parliament uh, agrees to the and, and passes the legislation that the courts, the constitutional court, put on put on the table that individual candidates, candidates should be able to stand in the national election. Yes. If that is possible by 2024, it could be that a new UDF, not necessarily the name, yeah. could as a forefront front of civic organizations put in place a number of candidates from across party political lines and become a, a meaningful op- opposition. This is just talk, it's sort of dinner talk, but it is a possibility because then you could actually get it the good ANC guys to say okay we're not we're not uh, fighting the ANC inside the ANC we're fighting it from outside as the UDF will be a partner from yeah. outside. And and that's a that's a possibility. But I'm at the moment we're we in a in a long hard struggle centered on corruption. One of my own personal big pet problems uh, Peter is is the lack of capacity in the civil service and especially at municipality level. Yeah. Um, I mean it is it is just indescribable how many of the municipalities in the rural areas look. I'm not talking Western Cape, uh, I'm talking, you know, north of that. And, and 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 someone said the other day that in five years' time, small towns would be labor camps where people just live and they would try to go elsewhere for work because there's no economy left and that's, that's absolutely the local government what it's worth I'm not emigrating and we're going anywhere I think it's an exciting country but we've got a bit of work to do
0: yeah no absolutely uh, thanks TNC I wish I could talk to you forever thank you so much for your time and to people fortunate enough to have heard this conversation thank you too and please stay with Podcasts from the Edge this is all new to me so please forgive the ums and the ahs I'll be back with another interesting guest next week with one final edition before the holidays and I really hope you can join me.